0: you're listening to the hazard ground podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of
1: combat and survival and now here's your host mark Zeno. welcome into the hazard ground podcast this week's guest is an Air Force Rescue rescueman jumper. He had 13 total deployments, including those in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. And beyond all of his injuries, being a wounded warrior, he also managed to be part of a group that helped climb mountains, including Mount Everest. We will get to all of that and a whole lot more, but let's welcome him in. He is Robert Disney on the Hazard Ground podcast. Robert, welcome. Thank you for being here.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: All right, so your story certainly one of the more interesting ones that we've heard as is, is you are our first power rescue jumperman, and we'll get into what all that means here in a moment. But how did your career in the Air Force start?
0: My career in the Air Force started, I was sitting in college, uh, was coming up on the end of a second year of college, realized that I didn't want to sit and just go to school for, uh, for eight years to try to become a doctor and decided instead that I wanted to try to do something with my life immediately, something challenging, something uh, with camaraderie. So I decided to try out the Air Force. Um, originally, I thought about the Navy, thought about going to the SEALs. I walked into a uh, Navy recruiter. He said, "Yeah, try out for the SEALs." And uh, you know, if you come into the Navy, you get a uh, you get a normal job, and then uh, uh, you can try out for the SEALs in two or three years. And I said, "Well, is there anything I can do immediately?" <laughs> and uh, and he said, "Well, the only people that have anything like that are the Air Force." So no kidding, I walked across the hall to the Air Force recruiter. He said, we have this thing called pararescue, pointed to an old uh, pile of dusty pamphlets in the corner. And I picked one up, and from that day on, I was hooked.
1: What about it hooked you?
0: Uh, It was the special operations nature of it, but the fact that it also combined that with medicine, with rescue, with combat. And uh, it just called to me.
1: All right, so how does this process start? Do you have to go to, like, Air Force basic training and everything else and then go to it, or is this something you jump right into
0: Yeah, sure. You do. You go straight to Air Force basic training, just like everybody else does. Um, You can either come in guaranteed pararescue, where you take the test prior to basic training, uh, which I did not do. Or when you're in basic training, they bring all the men in. At the time, it was all the men, and they brought them in and set them down in front of a TV screen. And they showed a video of pararescue and combat control training, uh, Air Force Special Operations career field training. And uh, they asked if anybody would like to try out. And your second week of basic training, you would go over and you'd take the physical aptitude and stamina test or the PASS test, a grueling physical three-hour test to determine whether or not you had the physical means to try out for pararescue or combat control. Um, As soon as you graduated basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, you went immediately into the pararescue indoctrination course at Lackland. Also, Um, you stayed there for 10 weeks. Uh, I went through a course where I started with 86 people. And 10 weeks later, graduated six.
1: Wow. That's an attrition rate that's higher than the SEALs or Special Operations for the Army.
0: It is, actually. Unfortunately, I believe they have a better recruiting program, which ends up helping them produce more numbers uh, and get people prepared before they show up for the indoctrination or their, uh, through BUDS, of course.
1: Right. What makes it so difficult? I mean, obviously, when you talk about SEALs and Special Ops, the the level of tactics and training and everything else you see guys get weeded out plus the physical and mental stamina that they have to endure but is that is that the same for men
0: it sure is uh, most of what we see is we get you know you get world-class triathletes world-class uh we had an mma fighter um you get people who are in incredible physical shape but the uh, being asked to step out of your comfort zone i mean when somebody's at a six minute mile or a 530 mile or a five minute mile Asking them to do a four-minute mile isn't necessarily realistic, so that's not something people are going to do. But asking somebody who can swim 2,000 meters on the top of the water to hold their breath for 50 meters may be something that actually pushes them out of their comfort zone. So in that way, you can take somebody with incredible physical uh, prowess and determine whether or not they have a, a strong mental aptitude to not quit when they're pushed out of their comfort zone.
1: It's interesting. I just say I don't think a lot of people know about that part of the Air Force because typically it's not what's really advertised. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those silent things. And even in, in the past 15 plus years of war that we've seen, you don't hear a lot of stories about power rescue men, jumpers and, and what they do. And what is basically the job that you do?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, first, let's just talk about what a special operator is. Any of the special operations career fields that your force recons, your Green Berets your Navy SEALs. Air Force pararescue and combat control. Those career fields are all people who are first, incredibly physically fit, second, incredibly mentally resilient and tough. Then you take them and you train them in basic combat skills. You take them from there and you train them to get anywhere through all the special operations infill and exfil courses, such as freefall, combat diver, static line, uh, the use of helicopters for air assault and for fast rope and repel infills. Um, you teach them to do tactical infill through SCUBA. Now that you've taught, taken that person who's, who's hard as nails, who is mentally resilient, and who can now get anywhere and fight, now you specialize them. Navy SEALs specialize, technically specialize in maritime operations and seek and destroy. Army Special Forces, trains in unconventional warfare, in languages, in teaching indigenous populations. And then para, Air Force Combat Control uh, specializes in controlling aircraft over a terminal area and then dropping bombs on targets, and also they're qualified air traffic controllers. So you got the destructive element of the Air Force Special Operations there. And then Pararescue is the restorative element of Special Operations. A combatant, no different than a SEAL or a special uh, Green Beret, Pararescue also does medicine and technical rescue. Pararescueman is a special operator specializing in personnel recovery through the application of technical rescue and medicine.
1: Wow. Okay. So everybody's got their their head wrapped around that whole deal. Uh, when you finish pararescueman school, or course, whatever it is, what year is it and how old are you and where are we in, in your life at this point?
0: I finished the pararescue indoctrination course in February of 1997. I graduated then pararescue school, which is in Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico, in April of 1998. I I finished school after two years of training and immediately went to Moody Air Force Base, Georgia, with the 41st Rescue Squadron.
1: So this is all happening prior to 9-11. Where are you when that day happens? 9-11,
0: I'm sitting in Turkey, supporting the northern no-fly zone in Iraq in Operation Northern Watch. I'm in a barracks, and I was actually in my room playing PlayStation or something, and one of my buddies walks in and says, do you not know what's going on right now? So I wasn't even in the United States when 9-11 happened.
1: All right, so what's the reaction? What What are all you guys saying?
0: There was a room full of people standing around the TV uh, with drawn faces, mouths hanging open, eyes wide. Nobody said a word other than the occasional exclamatory expletive. Um, The Turkish government, the Turkish military at the base that we were at, actually did a great job providing us with personal security. We all... Retreated, of course, to the Tactical Operations Center, where we monitored computers, monitored the news, and monitored the TVs for further action.
1: Was anybody thinking at that point in time, hey guys, we're going in, we're going to war now?
0: Absolutely, we knew we were.
1: So was there a a sense of excitement about that? And I use the well, term excitement loosely because we, we talk about this all the time on the podcast when people were where they were on 9-11, what the reaction is, Robert. And it's just a sense of, you know, some guys t- have a very businesslike approach and a lot of other people, especially, you know, guys who were younger in their military careers when it happens. You know, it's the chance to prove themselves that they get excited about.
0: Of course. And military personnel recovery or combat search and rescue missions didn't come up very often back in the late 90s or even early 2000s. So the opportunity to go actually do the job that we're training for was something that appealed to me. Of course, everybody wants to prove themselves. A firefighter doesn't want to just do training all the time and never actually see a real fire or never save a life. That's what they train to do, and it's what they've been called to do.
1: After all this happens on 9-11, you know you're going somewhere. How long does it take you to get to your first deployment, and where do you go?
0: In my case, I didn't go to war immediately. I was only an EMT intermediate, and a mandate came down from our career field that all pararescuemen must be paramedics. So I was chosen as one of the first to go through a paramedic upgrade course. I went to Tidewater Community College in Virginia Beach from January 2002 until June 2002. I finished that, received my paramedic uh, qualification, and then I deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in June of 2002.
1: Okay. So how hard was it for you to have to be pulled out of Turkey when you're so close to where all the action is and everything else and your buddies are going to Afghanistan for you to go back to a class, like stateside?
0: Well, it's funny you mention that. It was very difficult seeing my squadron leave and head off to war. And, of course, I'm just going to go to school and sit in a classroom. It was even more difficult when on March fourth, two 2002, while I was sitting in class, I got pulled out of class by one of our instructors to let us know That Jason Cunningham, one of my buddies from Valdosta, Georgia, from Moody Air Force Base, from my own squadron, had died in combat at Roberts Ridge. So, yeah, it was very difficult. And that only increased the hunger, increased the anger and the frustration. So when the class ended in June of 2002, oh, man, I was chomping at the bit to get out of the squadron. And I actually did less than four weeks later in mid-July of 2002 and went to Kandahar, Afghanistan.
1: Wow. that's And for those who are listening who aren't familiar with Roberts Ridge, uh, it's one of the more notable battles uh, in the early part of Afghanistan. It was Takugar is where the battle happened. Neil Roberts uh, was the first Navy SEAL killed in the War on Terror, and it's named after him, Roberts Ridge. Essentially, a bunch of rangers uh, got trapped up on a mountaintop, and uh, there was several attempts to rescue them and get them out there as they were stuck in a firefight. Uh, and Neil Roberts, I, I think if I'm correct on this, uh, he fell out of the back of a chopper uh, and was killed, and that's kind of the, the attempt to rescue him and get the rangers out of there was this whole entire battle of Takugar that lasted basically the better part of 13 hours. They were stuck on the top of that mountaintop. Uh, but it's an, it's an incredible story, incredible documentation on for those out there who want to know. So finally you get back to Afghanistan. You catch up with your squadron. What, what is your mission when you get there? What are you told, expectations, what are your feelings, thoughts, all those things?
0: Sure. We had, I had already done four deployments. As a pararescue man supporting both HH-60s and C-130s in CSAR, enforcing the northern and southern no-fly zones of Iraq from both Kuwait and Turkey. So my experience so far with doing combat search and rescue was basically a whole lot of sit around and wait. You know, you sit around right. and wait for a phone call to come in that never, ever comes in. So you end up doing a lot of training, you watch a lot of movies, you work out a lot, you tan a lot, and you go to the desert and get big. And and that was really what we did up to that point. So going to Afghanistan gave me an opportunity to really see what this job was all about, man. Um, I was going to be sitting alert with HH60s out of Kandahar for essentially the entire southern portion of Afghanistan, south and east, um, everything south of the Hindu Kush, because, of course— uh, when helicopters are heavy, they can only achieve altitudes so high. And if people don't know, the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan are 18 and 20,000 feet high. Very enormous mountains. So we were limited in where we could go, but it was most of the southern and eastern half of the country.
1: Okay, so what happens on your first experience of, of being a pararescueman?
0: Sure. My first experience with combat search and rescue in afghanistan an actual mission was flying from kandahar late at night out to origany afghanistan a small fire base out there to pick up a uh, person a afghani soldier that had actually been injured and he'd been run over by a truck um he'd been run wow. over by a deuce and he'd been run <laughs> over by a five ton um right across the middle of his body and it fractured his pelvis so this was really amazing i show up at organy in the middle of the night full combat gear and the special forces guys there usher us into this small building, and it was a shed. It wasn't even a shed. It was a small goat barn. It was so small, it had these little bitty doors. And in this goat barn, when I walked in, they had a forward surgical team set up, the fast team. They had, no kidding, an operating room inside this goat barn, and they were putting in an external fixator to stabilize this man's pelvis And we stood there while they were finishing this up. He wasn't even stabilized yet and ready to get out. So we showed up, and, of course, he's laid out on the table, and the X-Fix is in him, and the the doctor gives us a patient report of what's going on with him, and and so our job was to transport him from there over to Kandahar. Now, of course, this is just a standard CASVAC or MEDEVAC-type mission, just kind of a fob-to-fob transfer, but it was my first experience as a PJ, actually treating a patient in the back of my helicopter who'd been who'd been injured in a combat zone. So it's a uh, so it is a experience I'll never forget.
1: Uh, certainly, was it weird that your first one was not even to go get an American?
0: No, we knew we were there to do both um, host nation and coalition forces. Okay, um, it doesn't change how you treat them either.
1: No, it sure. It doesn't change
0: your priority. It doesn't change how you treat them. It doesn't change your Uh, any of your medical protocols, you do what you're trained to do.
1: Uh, The the only reason I ask is because you had waited so long to actually do a mission. And it's, you know, the main part of your job, I assume, is to to save American lives first. But if other people are in need, obviously, you help. It's just kind of um, coincidental or ironic, if you will, that the first life you had to go and save wasn't even an American of that. So uh, just, you know, at least it was for me.
0: Sure. You know, we even found ourselves working sometimes on enemy insurgents.
1: Oh, in the really? back of our
0: helicopters, completely restrained. And sometimes they would wake up from post-surgical or wake up because obviously there's intelligence value in them. There's uh, You still want to save lives if when you can. And, um, you know, if they're going to be imprisoned or if they're going to be questioned and, and interviewed, you want to make sure that they are in good health so they can do that and so that their answers are reliable. So um, you just work on whoever the coalition decides is the person you need to work on today.
1: You know, guys who make a living the way you do in the military who are often riding in helicopters, um, you know, it's a big joke between all of them, you know, who who here has been in a helicopter crash? Because at some point, usually everybody gets into one, right? I mean, and and, and you don't say that lightly because some of them are are fatal, but a lot of times helicopters crash and everybody seems to survive. But uh, were you one of those people who survived a helicopter crash?
0: Did were you put up to this? (laughs)
1: no i mean we've done a little research on you
0: (laughs) okay because right now we're in late july of 2002 Mm -hmm. and i believe my second mission was august 12th of 2002 and on that date i flew out to eastern afghanistan again to that same firebase we picked up two patients on the way flew to organee dropped them off at the forward surgical team again in the goat barn and then our home station ordered us to come home despite the long night. And as we took off out of that fire base uh, in an HH-60, I was in the second bird. We ended up crashing as we left the base.
1: What was the reason for the crash?
0: Well, there are a number of contributing factors to our helicopter crash. As we began to take off out of the base, we had just taken, off, or just taken on a full load of fuel so we were heavier we were up at above 7000 feet so we were at high altitude it was a hot night a summer night in afghanistan so the air was thinner the barometric pressure was obviously lower it was a it was a extremely dark night zero illumination so there were a lot of factors going against us top that off with the fact that the at the end of the shale uh, forward area or forward uh, area arming and refueling point or the FARP site at the forward, the forward edge of it, there were, the rocks gave way to a foot thick of dust and that foot thick of dust, because we were heavy and having to do a long, uh, low altitude running takeoff, we were still low altitude and not very fast forward, still not out of ground effect, as we say, when we reached the edge of the FARP area and the dust completely surrounded the helicopter so now you're in a huge dust cloud the dust cloud is so thick that i couldn't see through it the pilots looked down and the heads down display was actually down it was one of the maintenance write-ups but there was two of them so anyway so the pilot who took control um the heads down display was inoperable so wasn't able to see any red ground references So now you're in an aircraft that you have no idea what its attitude actually is, what its altitude is, what its position is in relation to other things on the ground. So she tried to set it down and in doing so pulled it back. I was sitting in the back left door facing to the rear with my body armor, my back plate up against the forward edge of the troop door, scanning outside with night vision goggles on and of course full gear. And as We cleared our own dust cloud because we were moving back and left to about the 7 or 8 o'clock so fast that we cleared our own dust cloud. I could see the ground rushing underneath me from that direction and moved out of the door just as the left gunner called, Stop, left drift, left drift, stop, stop, trying to ask the pilot to correct. Thankfully, I moved out of the door and into the center of the aircraft and braced myself just as the back end of the helicopter hit a berm that surrounded the base, about a 10-foot-high berm. And when it hit that, it literally shut the door on the left-hand side as it passed backwards over the first berm. Had I not got out of the door, I'd have absolutely been split in half by the door. When oh. it sh- Shut like that. Then the helicopter... Well, let me ask you real this-
1: quick. I'm sorry to interrupt. Was that... Training? Instinct? I mean, what was the reason for getting out of the way?
0: It was just a reaction.
1: Okay, it I mean, that's fair. It, I, I yeah, just I didn't know if there was any sort of, you know, if you're going down, there was a reason to move to a different spot in the chapter for safety reasons. I mean, if it was just a reaction and, and you did it, God bless you. I mean, you're, you're here talking to me, so, I mean, obviously it worked out well.
0: I still, to this day, don't know why I did it.
1: So that wasn't normal for you? Like normally you would have just stayed in that spot?
0: Normally I'm not in a backsliding left drift, so I have no idea what (laughs) normal would have been in that situation. So I guess for me, normal is moving the hell out of the door when you're screaming back left in a helicopter at low altitude. So, yeah, I uh, moved out of the door, moved into the center. Gunner calls stop left drift. And just as he did that, the back end of the helicopter – uh, tail rotor made contact with the concertina wire fence that surrounded the fire base that we were on grabbed a hold of it the helicopter lurched backwards and left and began to roll as it did and i remember the feeling of the floor as it went from horizontal to 30 degrees to 60 degrees and then i remember thinking oh my gosh we're going to, we're crashing and then the whole helicopter started shaking violently and i fell as the floor achieved a position. So vertical, uh, again, I fell obviously through the helicopter onto the door that had just closed that I had been on a few in a few seconds before that I could have been split in half by. And now I fell so hard. My ass punched through the punched through the removable window on the left hand side. And I was underneath my buddy and underneath The Stokes litter and all of our kit, I was on the far left side underneath the helicopter, underneath, correction, inside the helicopter, but underneath everything in it. And it just sat there as the blades all snapped off. And then the rotor head continued to try to chew itself into the ground as the helicopter sat upside down. And it was the most violent and noisy and scary thing I have ever experienced. And I just laid there with my helmet pinned to the ceiling, which was now the floor as it chewed its way into the ground. And I honestly laid there and thought to myself, here it comes. It's going to explode. We're going to die. And I just laid there and waited for it to happen. There wasn't anything I could do except wait it out. The pilots, thankfully, went for the uh, emergency shutdown procedures and were able to reach it and reach the controls, shut the helicopter down, and it stopped moving. And when it stopped moving, the air was so thick with dust that it was like being underwater. My night vision goggles had been knocked off, so it was completely black. I couldn't see anything. And it was dead still, incredibly still. And I couldn't even hear myself breathing. And then I heard my teammate, my team leader, yell out, Is everyone okay? and one or two people might've said, I'm okay. And then he said, sound off by crew position. And saying something like that makes people think with their minds instead of with their hearts or with their feelings. Right. And everybody sounded off by crew position. So we knew everybody was okay. All six of us, the pilots of course were suspended in their seats by their harnesses and they suspended upside down. So the, a uh, gunner and flight engineer ended up getting out Getting while my team leader got up on top of the helicopter. I was tangled up in a Concorde and was unable to get out, so the flight engineer helped me esca- escape the aircraft egress. I climbed up on top of the helicopter with my team leader, and there was a moment there. There was a moment where I saw a kind of a goofy, talkative... Um, sarcastic kid turned into a fantastic team leader and he was kneeling on top of the helicopter, had just pulled the pilot's door open. The other helicopter was about to land near us and he got on the radio with complete calm and said, do not, do not land where we are. Land over on the far side. Everyone here is okay. The danger of brownout is too high. So we pulled the pilots out of the out of the hulk of the helicopter and we all got out and the about that time the sf guys from the firebase of course had heard this deafening noise at two o'clock in the morning and they'd all been woke up and came running and they showed up in trucks and on foot and with medical kits and with backboards ready to especially expecting to uh, remove a bunch of bodies from a helicopter and there we were, the six of us standing there in a small group. So it was a, it uh, was a true uh, blessing the way everything worked out.
1: I, I can't even comprehend the finite uh, chances of six people in a crash of that nature all being able to walk away under their own power. Like not a broken leg, not 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 a, a displaced hip, nothing. Like everybody was able to get up and walk away on their own power.
0: We were beat up. We had some cuts and scrapes on us. Nobody lost a limb. I wasn't split in half. <laughs> and the helicopter didn't blow up.
1: Did did that experience ever make you question continuing your career in the path that you were on?
0: It absolutely did. That was August 12th of 2002. And I was coming up on a reenlistment. I had re-enlisted the first time for six years. And that was uh, starting August 28th of 96. So we're now about three weeks out from the date that I could technically either re-enlist or just extend to stay in a little bit longer to finish out the deployment. I gave it a lot of thought, did a lot of soul-searching, talked to my friends, talked to my family, and believe it or not, uh, just a week and a half later, I re-enlisted for another four years in the Air Force. (laughs) Wow. Just after a helicopter crash.
1: Yeah. No reservations, huh?
0: No, none at all.
1: So... (laughs) So you've survived a helicopter crash, uh, and and you've reenlisted, and I, I assume that because you're in a combat zone and the nature of what has gone on there, that things didn't get easier from there on out.
0: No, man. So let me tell you what happened after that. So I get a couple more combat missions, and I end up heading home in, I believe it was probably early October of 2002. Yeah, 2002. Then about six weeks later, another group was about to go out the door to go to a different location in uh, in Operation Enduring Freedom. And at the time, we were staying in Jacobabad, Pakistan, with C-130s. His wife was ill, and he was unable to deploy. Me, being the young, energetic, dumbass, said, hey, <laughs> I'll take your spot. So six weeks after coming home from the desert, I turned around and redeployed again to the desert. I deployed just the day after Thanksgiving, actually, of 2002, and I went to Jacobabad, Pakistan, to fly with C-130s. Now, we were flying out of Jacobabad, but of course we were servicing the combat search and rescue operations for the entire Afghanistan theater at the time. Um, So I stayed there through that deployment came up until early March, I believe, when the new team rotated in. And again, that same individual whose wife had been ill had something else come up and still was not able to come over. So I, again, volunteered now to stay in place for what would have been a continuous eight-month deployment in uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. Um. Yeah, never gets easy to tell these stories. Never gets any easier. Take your time. Yeah, man, because <clears throat> you know where this is going. So about a month into that deployment, we get just a regular, what we would call a milk run, just going up to service our one of our rescue sites up in karshi Kanabad, Uzbekistan. Flew up there in the mid-afternoon and showed up right around dinner time. As we flew in, uh, we ended up getting struck by lightning, Thought that was pretty amazing. Wow. Checked out the airplane. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Being on an airplane, and there's this loud flash and an amazing bang, and uh, the pilots check all systems and everything, but the plane seems to still be flying. So we land in at Karshi Kanabad, Uzbekistan, check out the plane, everything's fine, and we all bail and go to chow. (laughs) <laughs> thinking that we're going to have a couple of hours.
1: Well, you know what I'm thinking at this point in time from you? I've survived a helicopter crash and a lightning strike. I probably should play Lotto as soon as possible because your chances of hitting are a lot better than the two experiences you just had. <laughs>
0: yeah, you'd think that. <laughs> so I, so we land at Karshi Kanabad Uzbekistan, go to the chow hall. I'm standing in the chow hall, and I'll never forget this about that chow hall. Remember, now, this is only a year and a half after 9-11, and they're on the ground is a four by eight sheet of plywood, a little memorial board that somebody had built. And it said, November 11th, less we forget. Not lest, less we forget. So apparently somebody had probably complained about it because I remembered that night it had been removed and put aside. So it made me happy that whoever the idiot was that had painted that thing um, ended up getting it removed. So standing in line and our... Flight engineer comes in and says, hey, guys, we got to go. We got a mission just as I'm stepping up to the chow line naturally. So I thought MREs again. Here we go. I go rushing out to the plane. Our team leader and our commander end up going into the tactical operations center to receive mission details while my teammate and I went out and set up the uh, SATCOM radio so that we could listen to what was going on. Here's the scenario. Somewhere south of Mazari Sharif, Afghanistan, in the basically in the middle of the Hindu Kush, is a boy and a girl who have fallen down a hill. And so naturally we started calling him Jack and Jill uh, right off the bat. Right. So Jack and Jill both had some kind of awful injuries. And it was a zero illumination night. It was low cloud covered. There were storms in the area. It of course was uh, you know it was gonna be dark super dark out there. And because it was right in the middle between Kandahar and and K2, which is where we were located, the HH-60 commander out of Kandahar, who commanded both sites, was flying that night. And I don't know if it was bad judgment or an error or just arrogance, but he decided to fly the mission himself out of Kandahar. And to do that, he'd fly have to fly up through the Hindu Kush to reach the site where these children were. There was a little bit of back and forth, but ultimately he played the commander card, and they decided that uh, Kandahar was going to take the mission. So we flew out of K2, flew down over mazar sharif and then over the site. And I remember getting over the site, and they said, hey, it's right below us right now and I'm sitting in the back of the C-130 and sitting in the forward-right scanning seat, and I look out the window, and I've got my NVGs on, and I can't even pick out the ground. Now, if you haven't worn NVGs, you don't know what it's like when it's really, really dark. It's not like just being in a room and you can see everything like you see on TV. It's so dark that the Uh, every single pixel in the NVG tries to pick up light, and sometimes it does so in error, and they just scintillate. They sparkle with, with all kinds of craziness, and you can't make anything out. And that's what I was seeing. I couldn't even see the ground, and we were only at 400 to 800 feet, pretty low. So I knew that it was going to be even more challenging for the helicopter who flies at even lower altitude, especially at that high up in the mountains. The... As we headed down and to rendezvous with the H60s, because we knew they would need to refuel at some point, the helicopter, lead helicopter, calls us and says, "Hey guys, we're going to need to refuel. Um, we'll go ahead and do it at Point X, and uh, we'll do it at low altitude. We're going to go at 400 feet."
1: So at the time, we'd been... for clarification, you're refueling in air.
0: That's correct. Okay. These, yeah, the C130, uh, the HC130 um Kings have a hose that comes out of each wing and the hose draws out to a level well below the back at the back end of the C130 so it's well behind but it still is close and it's got these large baskets, these drogue baskets that catch air and it holds them relatively steadily behind the C130 and then what happens is the H60 flies up just behind the C130 and plugs its probe into that refueling basket and it's a very, it's almost a ballet in how it's done because the C-130 has to slow way down and the eight sixties 60s have to speed way up. And especially when you're at that kind of altitude, now the air's even thinner. So any small input or small adjustment becomes some kind of major movement. So the uh, H-60s requested that from us. And the fact that they requested it at 400 feet, which was a new tactic that we were attempting at the time, made it even more concerning because now if the C-130 stalls, it's not going to be able to descend enough to be able to build up an airspeed air to even stay in the air. So it's already flying slow, and now it could stall, and now the ground's right there. And it's the C-130 pilot's job to essentially avoid terrain because the, C- the H-60 pilots are now staring at the wing, staring at the drogue, and they're just doing basically what the C-130 tells it to do. So they're completely, almost completely reliant on the C-130 for terrain avoidance. Now, granted, they've got PJs in the back who are looking out. They've got gunners and flight engineers in the back who are looking out. So there are extra eyes. But again, remember now, it's really dark, and you're at really high altitude in the mountains. So there was a lot of, you can feel the thing the factors just starting to kind of build up
1: and and let me just get some more clarification because you're saying you're flying at 400 800 feet that's off the top of the mountaintop so like you you know it's it's weird because you keep talking about being really high up in the mountains yet really low to the ground so i just want everybody to have a visual understanding that your your low altitude is to the top of the mountain correct
0: the low altitude is to the ground below us. We're flying well below mountaintops.
1: Okay, we're flying okay, in so a you've a
0: valley at this point.
1: Gotcha. Okay. That's what that's what I was looking for.
0: Correct. We're flying at a valley. We're talking about seven thousand feet above sea level, and that's where the ground level is. And now we're only about four hundred actual feet of elevation above the ground. Okay. So the, we're very in very close proximity to the ground. We're in this large huge this this big valley. But it's a a valley. I mean, there's mountaintops all around us. So there's very little room for error in this situation.
1: Got it. Makes sense now. All right, go ahead. Yeah, man.
0: So then we make contact with the helicopters. They pull up behind us. So now we're about to start refueling. Both loadmasters open the paratroop doors in the back because the H-60s have requested simultaneous air refueling. So we're going to have a helicopter plugged in on each side of the c 130 I hate this. All right. I'm sitting in the front right seat, so I can see the helicopter on the right. The helicopter on the right is actually the trail of the two helicopters. There's lead and trail. And the commander was flying in the lead helicopter, which is now on the left side. So, they're trying to plug up simultaneously. And I remember my helicopter coming up and I looked back at it and I watched it come up real steady. Its probe was right there with the drogue. It plugged into the drogue like nothing. It, it climbed a little bit, level with the wing, and then they took on fuel. It was just that easy. So, now that I see the helicopter's okay, I start scanning kind of out again and I'm listening to what's going on on the left side. And it was striking a miss, striking a miss, striking a, a miss. And what's going on there? is that the helicopter is attempting to plug into the drogue and it's missing it, and so it would back off, and then it would come up and try it again, and it would back off, and come up and try it again and back off. Now, that's not performance commensurate with a pilot of his status. He had 3,000 hours as an Army pilot before he even came over to the Air Force. We're talking about a master helicopter pilot. His co-pilot, though, was First Lieutenant Tammy Archuleta, a very young, very new pilot. And personally, I believe he was letting her fly the air refuel. Extremely confident. Hey, we're on a rescue mission. Why don't you go ahead and take this? Well, that ended up not working out so well for him. The C-130 called out that we were getting ready to take a left-hand turn in the aerial refueling track. So we had reached the end of essentially where the nice straightaway is, and we were going to make a turn to turn around and go back in the opposite direction. The helicopters chose to stay on, so they kept attempting to plug into the hose. And about halfway through the turn, the helicopter on the left deconnected, disconnected from the aircraft, moved out to the left. And slightly below the wingtip. Well, if you can picture this being far left of an airplane and slightly below it as you're looking at it. But if in actuality that airplane is in a turn and it's got a large bank or a heavy angle to its wings, now not only are you outside and slightly outside to the left, but you're actually far below the Uh, level of altitude of the C-130 and the HH-60 about 200 to 300 feet below the C-130 impacted a small widow maker of a hill and exploded oh god (sighs) there was a bright orange flash so incredibly bright on this dark night and the orange flash just lit up the surrounding countryside, and my NVGs were flooded out. And, of course, I could see all around the tubes uh, the orange or white flash that um, was uh, commensurate with the you know helicopter exploding. But I didn't know that the helicopter had crashed at that point. My first thought, I start hearing this, oh, my God, oh, my God, coming over calm. Oh, my God. And it was the sound of absolute, complete loss, sorrow, despair coming from the loadmaster who was in that open door watching that helicopter as it crashed. Oh. Now, what I thought, because nobody had said crash yet, was that one of the helicopters had just been taken out by a SAM, a surface-to-air missile. Right. I thought that was an explosion of a bird actually on our wing. And my mental image was that we were about to be engulfed in flame and I was, again, now I was going to die. And then somebody finally said, crash, 7 o'clock. And then there was a new realization of what had just happened. And it was a completely different emotion of concern and um, readiness and action. And what do, now what do we do? And as I remember it, everything was completely silent in the C-130 that night. It seemed like it was silent for a long, long time. And we continued in our track and we turned around. And what I was unaware of is that the radio operator was working his butt off. Everybody in the plane was working their butt off, um, doing their jobs, keeping the aircraft flying. We're talking on the radio, calling in aircraft, letting people know what had happened, relaying to the other helicopter. Instantly, the trail helicopter uh, went and landed um, just over the top of the hillside from where the helicopter was on the ground, the crash site. And they did so in a position where they no longer had line of sight with, um, with where the crash site was. So when the PJs got out, and also their left gunner actually got out of the helicopter to run up over the hill and down to the crash site. Now the deployed PJs, who deployed from the trail aircraft, no longer could contact their own plane, correction, their own helicopter, uh, on the radio. So they relayed through the C-130 to reach their own helicopter to be able to pass back situation reports and let them know what was going on. Um, They reported very quickly, the lead PJ on the ground, PJ Matt, Matt reported uh, hey, we've uh, found two of them, and we're not going to stop looking until we find them all. Very, very calm, very stoic. And then uh, we called back a few minutes later and asked for a situation report. And he said, uh, we found three of them now. And uh, be advised, there appear to be vehicle lights approaching from a mile to a half a mile out. Now, a vehicle lights approaching a mile to a half mile out doesn't take very long to reach you. Even in the mountains and rugged terrain, it's not going to take that very long. So we relayed that information back to the Joint Special, or correction, Joint Search and Rescue uh, Center, who who were located at the time in Al-Udeed, Qatar, far, far away. But a cell who does nothing but coordinate search and rescue in the area of operations. They relayed back almost immediately there are no friendlies in that area egress immediately so we relayed that information to our guys on the ground and they radioed back very quickly with uh, completely out of breath and clearly running because you could hear the stuff jangling all over them uh, Roger that we're returning to the helicopter now so they returned to the helicopter and we uh, uh, we ended up egressing the area. Um, the truck drove up the hill and parked at the crash site near it. Of course, you're talking about a helicopter moving at you know a hundred miles over over 100 miles per hour and it's on a hill so it was scattered over a big long line. Um, so they parked up there and turned their lights off. And then a harrier that we coordinated for came over the site. And drop flares on it just to let them know that, hey, there are people here watching you. So get this. Even after one helicopter crashed and the other helicopter had not taken on a full load of fuel, for them to be able to get to safety at Bagram, we had to refuel them again. Oh, wow. Can you imagine the tension in that helicopter, the stress, the fear, the... Uh, the focus, though, that would have been born out of something like that. And we refueled them at, at now a thousand feet, much higher than we uh, were doing the one previously. And we able to give them enough fuel so they could get to Bagram. So we followed them all the way to Bagram, made sure they made it there safely. And then once the helicopter landed, we took off and returned to Pakistan. I remember being in the air and being told, hey, there's the other C-130, because we had two of them at Jacobabad, there's the other C-130 there passing us right now. They had launched to go support the ongoing search and rescue operation for our heroes on the ground. When we landed at Jacobabad Pakistan, everybody was solemn, quiet, respectful, and clearly upset, but nobody more so than... Lieutenant Casey. Lieutenant Casey, the first question he asked me was, did you hear a woman's voice on comm? Lieutenant Tammy Archuleta was Lieutenant Casey's fiance. Oh man. And nobody had the heart to tell him that we did.
1: Oh, wow.
0: He later found out, he later found out that she was the co-pilot on the crashed aircraft. I later found out that the, the PJs on the crashed helicopter were Master Sergeant Michael Maltz and Senior Airman Jason Plight. Jason Plight was 21 years old, brand new PJ. And he was flying with the best of the best, Master Sergeant Michael Maltz. Master Sergeant Michael Maltz had become my father figure in pararescue, my hero, my mentor. He was the one of the best PJs I ever knew And he had pulled retirement papers to deploy to the desert one last time with the guys. And truly, it was his last. Oh, man. Get this. The PJs on the other aircraft were PJ Josh, who was Jason Plight's best friend, and Staff Sergeant Matt, who was Mike's roommate. These two guys are out there picking up their best friend and their roommate. So uh, it's, it's amazing how what a brotherhood it is and the fact that sometimes you're not picking up the bad guys, you're picking up your own.
1: I mean, phew, Robert, I don't know what to say other than I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I can't imagine the loss that you felt and that you still feel to this day. I mean, there's, there's no getting around it. Um, losing one of your own is, is probably the hardest thing we go through. And for those of us who put on a uniform and and it stays with you forever. It's just, it's, it's the way of the world, man. Yeah.
0: It certainly is. And it, it stirs up a lot of emotion, but one of them that it really stirs out is anger and determination. By God, you're going to avenge them. You are going to do things for them. You're going to do things to make sure that that doesn't happen again. You're going to, change your ways and you're going to uh, always be aware of your situations in case something like that happens again. You take them to turn them into something positive. Some people can be broken down by the pitfalls of life. And then there are people, I hope like me, who take your setbacks and you use it for something good. You use it to save other people's lives. You use it to stop similar experiences from happening to other people, to educate everybody and tell them what happened. And it did that for me. I mean, now I'd been crashed in a helicopter and I'd witnessed a fatal crash. I called my parents, of course, to let them know, uh, hey, I'm going to be on TV again, might be famous again. I'd hoped that it wasn't true what they say, that trouble comes in threes. Unfortunately, that turned out to be false also. (laughs) Trouble does, in fact, come in threes. So what happens next? (sighs) Four weeks later, I'm in uh, still in Pakistan. Still flying with the C-130s. And I had noticed a particular type of helicopter flying around our base. It was new. It hadn't Been at the base before. I was in the gym one day and getting spotted by somebody, and I asked him, Hey, what do you do? And he said, I fly those types of helicopters. I said, No kidding. I didn't even know we had those here. And he said, Hey, yeah, you know, and as we got to talking, as a whole lot of military stuff happens, you talk to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, or you just say, Hey, let's try something together. And it turned out that we both had services that the other could use. So we went out one day and looked at their helicopters, and then uh, they asked us to uh, if we would want to go out with them on a upcoming mission. Now, our team commander in place knew that he had two teams, one that was always on and one that was always off, and the date that these guys had the mission planned turned out to be the day my team just happened to be off. So he said, absolutely, yeah, let's do this. Now, he had experience working in a uh, kind of a secretive organization or secretive world. And, of course, they had done some interesting things there. And he decided, hey, why don't I give some of my own fellows an opportunity like this? It wasn't illegal. It wasn't immoral. It wasn't unethical. It was something that was completely in his scope to have us do. We were qualified to do it. And we were qualified to operate with those people. So he said, absolutely. Let's make this happen, man. You know, at that point, I felt I was at the height of my career. I was, I'd got myself in great shape. I'd been in the desert now for eight months out of the last nine. Uh, I had a bunch of combat experience and missions under my belt. Um, It was uh, the weekend of Good Friday. Actually, the day I, the day that uh, we went out on the mission was April 18th, 2003. And that was Good Friday. Just three days prior, I'd thrown a birthday party for a Uh, C-130 navigator, sorry, a friend of mine. And, um, uh, you know, things were were really going well. And I remember we played soccer every day around 3 o'clock. And at lunch that day, uh, one of my friends that I played soccer with said, hey, man, are you going to be at soccer today? And I said, no, no, I'm going out to do something cool. They said, oh, what are you doing? I don't know to this day what made me say it. It's not a phrase I've ever said before. I said, we're going out to pick a fight. (laughs) Few hours later, I got on board this helicopter with my three man team. There were a couple of other folks on the helicopter with us, but they were uh, they were crew. And uh, we took off out of Jakobat, Pakistan in the afternoon. I remember being hot, so incredibly hot. And as we flew out of the base, this was my first time flying out of that base in a helicopter because I was there with, of course, fixed-wing aircraft. I remember how hot the air was blowing through the back end of the helicopter. And it just felt like a like a blow dryer on you. There was no water in it at all. It just blew, the, blew all the water right out of your body. It sucked the moisture out of you, and it chapped your lips, and... Um, the ground below was kind of farmland and, you know, mud brick huts as uh, common to that area. And yet, as we flew on for about 90 minutes, the farmland gave way to some more arid land and then, uh, some desert. And then there was some nomads out there with some camels or sheep. And then I remember there was a canal and after the canal, absolutely nothing lifeless rocky austere it was like being on the surface of mars or being in hell and the uh then the mountains uh, we hit the mountains and the helicopter proved itself very powerful very capable picked us up over the mountains and we flew through this rugged terrain for maybe another half hour or so and I remember looking out the right side as the pilots relayed back to my team leader, hey, it's out there at the 2 o'clock. So I look out the right side of the helicopter and forward, saw a small plateau below some rising terrain. And right in the middle of it, I looked and I saw three or four people standing out there. Of course, they were wearing a local garb, wearing caftans or or along uh, what we call man jammies and uh, standing out there in a small, tight group, like, as you would if you were standing with two or three of your buddies uh, having a conversation or over beers or maybe around a campfire. And this is the middle of the day. And I remember one of our mission parameters was if there's anybody out there, we won't land. We won't go in if we see anybody on the way in. So I turned to my team leader and I said, Hey, Hey, there's, there's people out there there's people out there and he gets up and kind of moves forward. And I, you know, believe that he'd gone forward and told the pilots, which apparently he'd worked his way up there to go relay that. And then I looked back to the right when the site was at about the four o'clock position and there was nobody out there. It appeared they'd scattered or left. Unfortunately, it turns out they'd probably gone to take their positions. The helicopter made a right hand turn. Real hard bank. It was amazing how powerful this helicopter was. Then the nose pitched up really sharply. The tail dropped below me. As I looked out the back, I'm looking almost straight down at the ground as the helicopter's almost standing on its tail, burning off, burning off airspeed as it works its way down to the ground. And I remember the helicopter beginning to settle into place. To, uh, to land, and I heard a pop. And I looked around the helicopter to see if anybody else had heard what I'd heard. I'd been flying on H 60s for the last, uh, for 90 of the last, 90 days of the last 180 days. And uh, I thought maybe we had punched some flares. Sometimes they go off from various factors. It's what it sounded like. Big, loud pop. Then I heard a second one that was clearly a snap and not a pop. And there was daylight coming in from the left side of the helicopter, and I instantly knew what it was. I recognized it as gunfire. It, was small. it sounded like small-arms fire. Mm-hmm. I raised my rifle. Raised my rifle to my cheek, and I yelled, Hey! Everybody in the helicopter looked at me and I pulled the charging handle of my rifle, my M4 to chamber around. Others started going for their weapons and doing the same thing. Realized that we were going into an ambush and into combat and I expected to be on the ground in no time in a firefight. Then all hell broke loose. The fire became automatic, punching in through the aircraft literally like shooting fish in a barrel. The helicopter was in one of its lowest energy states as it lands, slow, forward, low to the ground. And it was just like literally shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, As I raised my weapon to my cheek to begin to return fire and to prepare to get off the helicopter, there was this feeling I ended up taking an AK-47 bullet to the face. Oh, Bullet smashed into my right cheek, probably traveled literally along the barrel of my own weapon, smashed in through my right cheek just about an inch and a half below and slightly to the right of my right eye. Cut a path diagonally down through my face because it was coming from basically straight forward. Mm -hmm. Snapped my ear canal, then chewed its way through my neck, coming out the back of my neck just a quarter inch to the right of my spine.
1: Oh, my God.
0: I felt two sensations. Number one was like Mark McGuire had just uh, teed off number 70 on my face. (laughs) with a a baseball bat, a Louisville Slugger. So there was a point pressure that I knew I'd been hit in the face. But my body felt a a concussion or the cavitation of that bullet as a shockwave that passed through my whole body. It felt like we just got hit by an RPG. So in my mind, all hell is breaking loose, and we're in a massive, massive firefight and a massive engagement. Pulled my right hand up to my face. look at the guy next to me and said, I got shot. And he, with his weapon raised, is screaming at me, shoot back, shoot back. The bullet hit me so hard that, and with the massive blood loss that happened from a severed jugular vein, I began to pass out, but stayed in the game. Now, I believe it was probably a autonomic reaction that happened as I sat there, raised, returned the butt of my weapon to my face, jammed the butt of my rifle into my exposed cheekbone, and maintained that position, holding my weapon out the back end of the helicopter for some 30 seconds, as estimated by my team member. The helicopter never actually physically landed. It transitioned from essentially a hover or about to land into a forward motion and left the objective area. Um, Of course, turned the tail to the threat so that they couldn't actually hit the pilots because then we'd really been screwed. And they egressed the area. And I held my position there on the seat until we crossed the first ridge. Then I got down, probably out of sheer exhaustion and shock. Got down on the floor of the helicopter at the very back end of it. I stafed my rifle, took my rifle off, took off my helmet. Correction, took off my body armor. My helmet had actually got thrown off my head by the force of the bullet hitting me. And I laid there on the floor and brought my right hand up to my face, found the, this big massive hole on my face and smashed my hand into it to try to stem the flow of blood. Then I laid, my, laid back against my ruck, my medical kit, which was on the floor, kicked my feet up on the chair across from me, the seat, and I laid down. And it was about that point, my teammate came over to me to check on me, asked me if I was okay.
1: I was wondering when that was going to happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, he was busy, okay? So the guy sitting right, there were three people shot in the helicopter. Very lucky that no more were hurt and that the pilots were okay. I'd been shot through the face. The guy sitting next to me, my other PJ uh, team member had been shot through the right armpit, creating a massive, massive arterial bleeder Oof. and also shot through the back of the hand of, uh, shot, he got through shot through the back of the hand. So, um, it was incredibly painful, incredibly bloody and, uh, very difficult to treat. So my teammate immediately started working on him. The one of us that did not get shot. A third person on the helicopter ended up taking a round in the bicep, and another one ended up hitting the his side of his flak vest in such a way that it split it open and split his side open. Thankfully, it didn't actually enter his chest cavity because it came from in front of him, if you can imagine that. Right. So this is something pretty amazing. You've got one PJ who's not shot who has an instant mass casualty right in front of him with severe bleeders a gunshot wound to the face a massive arterial bleeder from an armpit and a guy with a chest wound so he he had a work cut out for him
1: yeah okay but now thankfully, it makes sense
0: <laughs> yeah but right but thankfully all US military personnel are trained in uh self aid and buddy care we're we're trained on how to for the most part how to stop a bleeder the basics of it Granted, obviously, PJs are paramedics and then are allowed to do some procedures that are far above the paramedic level in the field due to the remote nature of our work. But uh, these other personnel on board only had the self-aid and buddy care training. So one of them came over to me as I laid there and he said, how are you? Is there anything I can do? And I asked him, can you start an IV? (laughs) And it was probably the slowest no I've ever heard, you know, because my heart sank because it was something that I knew needed to be done. But um, the adrenaline and the surge of it from this had made my mouth go dry. And I asked him for some water and he gave me his camelback so I could sip some water. So I laid there for a little bit longer and PJ Ross came over to me and uh, checked me out, asked me how I was. I was able to respond to him a little bit. And he took three rolls of gauze and literally stuffed them in my face. Then he repositioned my hand to stem the flow of blood so that because I had my hand actually inside my face instead of just on it. And went back to working on the other guys. He came back a little bit later, put a different bandage on it, a big, huge pressure bandage, that has these long uh, long streamers that you use to tie it, usually around a belly or around a back or around a thigh, but this is around my face. And he only barely tied them off. So now there's about 10 feet of streamer hanging out the back of the helicopter, holding you know onto my head. And he says it was one of the most surreal moments looking back at me sitting there slumped over with these streamers flying off my head out the back of the helicopter. What took us 45 minutes to get to the objective took 27 or 28 minutes to get back.
1: Oh, okay.
0: They really pushed it up. They ran the engines up to 100 and, you know, probably 120% and uh, actually just got us back. And we landed on the tarmac back at Jacobabad, Pakistan, where we had taken off from. And this is a small base, we knew everybody especially the first responders, the firefighters, the cops. And I remember landing in the fire, seeing Ross jump off the back of the helicopter and he's waving his arms and he's screaming at people. Come on, come on. They didn't know what was going on. They thought it was an exercise. So now they see Ross standing there covered in blood and he's waving his arms and screaming like a madman. And they came running out to the helicopter. And when they got to me, I'd already taken off my, uh, off my what we call cowtail. it's essentially a little belt that uh attaches our waist to the helicopter and it's about four feet long so i had taken that off as my safety and when they asked me do you you know here here's a litter i said absolutely not i can walk i can walk i want to walk so two of them got under each one of my arms and helped me walk to a waiting humvee and as i was walking to the humvee I passed the base commander who would come out occasionally and see us out at, our, uh, out at our location. And I remember him standing there, and I think he was tall. But that day, it seemed like he was so short. The way he looked at me, uh, just standing there completely stunned. And he looked at me, and as I walked up, I snapped a salute and said, Howdy, Colonel, <laughs> as, I walked, <laughs> as I walked past. And I was helped into a Humvee, and they uh, patched me up. They took me to a medical tent. And like I said, it was a small base, and we knew everybody. And in that medical tent, I've got the one guy on the left, and then my buddy across from me, who the PJ that had been shot. And we're both laying there and getting treated, and there's a whole team of people working on each of us. And we're cracking jokes at each other. It was, it was just seemed like the right thing to do.
1: And everybody survived? We
0: did. Everybody survived. Whew.
1: Robert, you now, consider yourself lucky?
0: I consider myself fortunate.
1: What's the difference?
0: Luck, I see think, is something that is left up to chance. I think that luck is not... What you do with it? Fortunate has as its root word fortune. Fortune implies implies wealth. It implies success. It implies great things. I'm not lucky, brother. I'm fortunate.
1: Fair explanation. Perfectly worded too. I mean, it's uh, you know, uh, again, helicopter crash, lightning strike, uh, witnessed a fatal crash, and shot in the face, and That is good fortune that you're still sitting here talking to me, bro. Are you ready? Yes.
0: We'll do this fast because I've done this a couple times. I had facial paralysis and a hole through the back of my neck. I got back up on fully operational status in about two and a half months. Unrestricted duties of pararescuing. In September of 2003, just six months after I got shot, five months... On my first parachuting jump back on status, I broke my right arm on a landing. Oh. <laughs> okay. January of 2004, on a static line jump, I got one of my teeth knocked out and ended up getting a bridge put in. In December of 2005, on a static line parachuting jump, I still have no idea how it happened, but I tore both of my biceps and on landing was unable to hold up my weapon. Ooh. June 2006, I had a bilateral hernia surgery. And then just a month later, deployed for seven weeks. One month later, deployed for seven weeks when Israel and Hezbollah were decided to lob rockets back and forth. January 2007 was a good year. January 2008, I was doing helicopter operations in support of Red Flag uh, exercise at Nellis Air Force Base. And as I climbed the rope ladder, I got to the top and was unable to get myself into the helicopter. And I continued trying and trying and I peeled off of the rope ladder from 15 feet and fell flat onto my back. And it gave me a traumatic brain injury so severe, it changed my personality. It knocked me out and eventually changed my personality. Six months later in July of 2008, I was fast roping out of a helicopter at Moody Air Force Base and broke my right leg. December to February 2009, I gained 26 pounds in 45 days. Went to the doctor to find out what was going on because I was about to deploy. I wasn't allowed to deploy because they determined that my thyroid had quit working and so had my testicles. I stopped producing testosterone. So I began getting medicated for both of those. In 2010, I deployed. And when I came back from that, I had fac- facial scar revision surgery and a an notoplasty on my ear to have my ear repaired six months later in december i went in for another round of reconstructive surgery 2011 was decent 2012 i tore my right rotator cuff on a parachuting jump and instead of receiving an immediate mri for it i was given an x-ray which showed nothing remarkable i could not lift my arm over my shoulder level for eight months and finally had surgery at the end of november in 2012 to repair my rotator cuff In 2013, after returning from Mount Everest, my ex decided to leave me for a happier, younger, healthier man. We divorced in 2014, just as I made E9. Summer of 2014, I tore both of my calf muscles doing box jumps. 2015, I deployed to Iraq. January of 2016, after years and years of difficult sleep, lethargy, fatigue, depression, anxiety, I finally decided to get a sleep study to determine what was going on with my sleep. And they, the doctor, determined that I had something, well, unique. Plenty of people have apnea when they go to sleep at night; they stop breathing, and usually it's a result of a, of a swollen throat, collapsing on itself. But there's also central apnea. And central apnea is when the brain does not send a proper signal to the diaphragm to breathe. That usually happens when people are asleep. What was strange about mine, what it was happening when I was awake. I have waking primary central apnea. And the only thing the doctor can come up with, because I have no cardiac problems whatsoever, which is one of the primary causes of central apnea the only thing that he can figure that it was due to the traumatic brain injury given when I started him having the problems with sleep and with my health that drove a medical evaluation board a military uh, investigation into my medical status which drove a medical retirement in August of 2016 I had a triple nerve ablation of my lower back where they go in and burn out nerves that were causing me severe back pain due to degenerative disc. And then finally in October of 2016, I had an umbilical hernia surgery to repair a a fat belly button. Part of my intestines were poking through my belly button. Finally, I retired. I retired from the military on April 14th, 2017, which was Good Friday the 14th anniversary of the day I got shot. I formally separated from the Air Force after 21 years of service on June 1st of this year. I achieved the highest enlisted rank in one of the most elite career fields in the Department of Defense. I've seen combat, i saved lives I've been injured and recovered. If anything, I heal like Wolverine.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I've seen the highest highs, the lowest lows, and everything in between. And I can honestly tell you, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Truly, I am the happiest I have ever been.
1: I, I don't know what to say other than you know congratulations. I mean, I... I- I don't think many people could have ever walked a mile in your shoes and you're telling all these stories about all these soldiers. And I'm wondering why, like, what, at what point do you stop? And, and you said it so eloquently at the end there, um, you wouldn't change a thing. And, uh, Hey, um, your story, your life, and you ended it on your terms. And I think that's something that a lot of people strive for and, and don't often get. And for that, I, I, I congratulate you. I mean, uh, obviously I thank you for your service and everything that you've done. And and your your dedication to your craft and and your dedication to our military and protecting our country. But, uh, you know, congratulations on an incredible career and I I don't know what else to say.
0: Well, thank you much. So what now? (laughs) What
1: now? What what now for somebody like you? (laughs) What
0: do I do? What do I do now? What does Rob Disney do in retirement?
1: Heal. I had a lot of friends.
0: (laughs) I had a lot of friends who said, Do yourself a favor, don't immediately go back to work. Actually retire for a little while, spend some time finding yourself. When I decided to retire, as soon as they said medical evaluation board and told me how severe the condition was, I saw the writing on the wall. So I began preparing. I started searching for a place to live and I decided after doing a little bit of research on what my retirement income would be given my disability, given my rank, given my, uh, rental houses, some other income that I have realized that if I didn't want to work anymore, I wouldn't have to. So if you're not looking for a place to live because of, to please a wife or to, to get a job or for a school system for kids, I could go anywhere I want. So I had to answer the question, where does Rob Disney really want to be? And for me, for 10 years, it was, I want to be in a log cabin in the mountains. So do you know I started searching? And on about day three or four of searching, just day three or four, on online, I found a three-story, 3,000-square-foot 3, log cabin sitting on 40 acres at almost 10,000 feet in the remote Colorado mountains. It was on city power, it had phone, it had a well. So I called a bank, got pre-approved for a loan, and by day seven of searching, I was on the ground in Colorado from Tucson, making an offer on the house. And wouldn't you know what my offer got accepted? I live in my dream home and I want to tell you how I did it because I did not just simply live without a plan. I always knew the day would come that I would have to take off the beret and the uniform and that I would have to have something that I could do after the military. All you have to do to be able to retire comfortably is know where you are, know where you want to be, on an actual timeline that's realistic and create a plan that gets you there. Now, the hardest part about that plan is that you then have to live every single day with the end state in mind. That's the hard part. That's the part where people fail. Anybody can create a plan, but living by it is something very different. People invest in whatever they want. For me, I chose real estate. I chose to learn about it. I chose to do it. And now I have income coming in, passive income from rental houses, houses that I bought along the way. But whatever somebody chooses to try to invest in, all they have to do is learn about it, study it, read books on it, talk to somebody who does it and knows it and is an expert and is successful in it. And you too can get
1: there. Once again, another powerful yeah. words, you know, just to in, yeah. in, in, inspirational. I, I just,
0: <sighs> the other thing I chose to do while I was in was that again, I knew that all of my pararescue skills didn't mean anything on the outside, not collectively individually. Yes. I could go work as a paramedic or I could go work as a shooting range or I could be a skydiving instructor or I could be a scuba diving instructor, but I couldn't take all of that and put it together into one equivalent to pararescue. So I knew that if I wanted to do something, and if it was because my body would give out, I'd need to have something else, something I could do, something that was mine. So I pursued higher education. I got a bachelor's degree in Homeland Security with a concentration in counterterrorism. And then in the process of doing that, I discovered cyberterrorism and became incredibly interested in it and decided to pursue a master's degree in cybersecurity. So if I want, I no longer have to do something that uses my body and gets beat up the way I did for the last 21 years. I have something now that I could do from my home. I've been offered a job doing counter human trafficking from my home over the internet. Now, as I said, I don't need a job right now, but if I want one, I can do it because I made good choices along the way, live your life right, make good choices, be resilient, stay in good shape, and you can have or do anything that you put your mind to.
1: I can't say it any better than that. Chief Master Sergeant Retired, Robert Disney, thank you so much for your time, your candor, your honesty. And of course, thank you for your service to our nation. and. Listen, uh, we're inspired to have you here and we really appreciate it.
0: Thank you much. Keep moving.
1: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.